Well, I am so excited about this series that we're kicking off 2020 looking at called The Story of Salvation. The Story of Salvation. And I think it's such a good reminder for us as a church as we kick off the new year to come back and to just look at and be reminded again of how all of Scripture is flowing to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And how Jesus is central in everything and in all that exists. And I think sometimes, if you're like me, as you read through God's Word, and as you study various portions of it, the temptation and the the challenge at times can be is you can lose the forest for the trees. Right? You can get so consumed in, in looking at particular verses, and God's word is certainly worthy of deep study, and verses are worth to be studied and poured over for days and for hours. But if we're not careful, we can lose the big picture of where it's all headed. That's why I like that video that we showed today. These stories that many of us, if we've been around church, or if you're like me, you grew up and heard as a child. We may think of them just as independent stories along the way, but ultimately they're part of a grander story that God is telling throughout his word. And when I think of things in scripture that perhaps we've missed the forest for the trees when it comes to stories and issues, perhaps the greatest thing in my life when I think of this is the topic and the story that we're going to be looking at today which is the story of creation. The story of creation, how the whole world begins and how you and I began about on this world and the meaning and the significance that that has for us today. Now, if you saw online or you heard last week that we're going to be talking about creation this morning, so you showed up in Moody Church thinking that you were going to leave today knowing exactly how long it took God to create the world, you will leave disappointed today. If you showed up hoping that you would get an exact age of the earth down to the very year, you will leave disappointed today. Those things are good to study and are good for us to dive into, but ultimately those are singular issues. And if we just focus on those, we miss the broad scope that creation has for us as it is contained throughout all of Scripture. And if you have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to open it. We're going to be looking at primarily text today from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, if you're new to Christianity, if you're visiting, that's the very beginning of your Bible. If you just go to the table of contents, flip over a couple pages, you'll find Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And this morning we're going to look together and look at three truths of creation as we dive into these first two chapters here in Scripture. Starts with this. In Genesis 1, verse 1, says this In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God has existed before this world began. He exists eternally outside of time. He is independent and separate from everything that we see, all of creation. But God is the one who takes the initiative in the creative process. 
This is fundamental and was a given throughout so much of history as mankind assumed this. But in our day, we often find people who would push back against even the very truth of this verse. See, the story of Scripture starts with the story that everything you see, including your life, is not here by chance. You are not an accident. This world is not an accident that just happened to come about. Everything that we see and know, can feel, can touch, and have experienced is because there is a God who decided to create. So God created the heavens and the earth. And Genesis 1 goes to start to show God's process of creation. As he creates light and darkness, he creates mass. And then it starts to say this in verse 10, which is in day 3. It says, God then created the dry land and he called it earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. The third day he saw that it was good. The fourth day the earth starts to be filled And it says that the earth brought forth vegetation in verse 12. And at the end, and God saw that it was good. God sees his handiwork that he is bringing about. And he says, this is good. Day day four, day five, excuse me, verse 18. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens. He's created the sun, the moon, and the stars to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Next verse is in verse 21, where God starts to fill the earth with living animals. It says, so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Are you starting to get the point here? Verse 25. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God sees the handiwork that he has brought about and he proclaims over and over and over that it's good. And what's amazing to me is at this point, mankind isn't even around yet. We're not even on the planet. We haven't shown up and God looks down at this world and says, this is good, what he has made. And this first truth about creation that sets up the rest of Scripture, it flows, it's so fundamental, is that all creation reflects God's glory. All of creation reflects God's glory. God doesn't wait until mankind is on the earth and says, oh, finally, Finally, now something good that I can be pleased in that reflects my character, reflects my nature. And said, everything that he has created, the worlds, the stars, the trees, the animals that fill it, all of it is a reflection of God's power and God's creative nature. So the Bible is filled with a reflection on the significance as God as creator. Not just the creator of mankind, but the creator of all things that are seen. So what do we mean when we say that creation, that our world reflects God's glory? Well, what do we mean by saying that the world, not just people, but all of creation, reflects God himself? 
How does it do that? The first way that creation reflects God's glory is it shows God's power. Creation shows God's power. It says this in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 20. It says, his invisible, speaking of God, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. What in the things that have been made. And Paul makes this argument that you don't need God's, just God's word to remind you that God is powerful. But you can look out at creation and you can see the awesome power of our God. Have you ever been somewhere where you've just had to stop and say, we serve a powerful God? When I think of a place that demonstrates the power of God in creation, my mind went to Niagara Falls. And if you've ever had a chance to be at Niagara Falls, as you've witnessed just the massive amounts of water running over the edge and the thundering roar that is constant as the water flows. You stand there and you realize how powerful that water is and it's just a small reflection of the power of its creator. That if God could create something as powerful as this, imagine how powerful God the creator must be. And as we seek out and as we look out into our world, we're reminded over and over again that God is a powerful God and creation itself is a witness to the power of God. The second way that creation reflects God's glory is it shows his grandeur. It shows his greatness and his grandeur when we look out and behold all that he has made. Psalm 19 verse 1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. One of the great downsides of living in Chicago is we don't get to see these very often. Right? It's, it's cloudy 350 days a year, and the other 15 days, there's too many street lights to see hardly anything in the sky, right? But if you've ever been, recall the times where you've been outside of the city and in areas that are dark, and on a clear night, you look up and you realize just how great the world is. How small Earth is, not just in our own galaxy, but in the galaxy of all the galaxies that God has created. And you see the greatness of the universe, and it shouts out, my creator is even greater than this. Creation itself proclaims the grandeur and the greatness of God. Not only that, but thirdly, creation proclaims the beauty of God. Creation shouts of the beauty and the worth that God has in this world because of the beauty of creation reflects back the beauty of its creator. It says this in Psalm chapter 95, verse 4 to 6. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry lands. And what is the response to looking at God's creative work? Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The psalmist sees the beauty of God in creation and is overwhelmed and moved to worship and glorify him. 
because all of creation shouts God's praises and shouts God's glory. There's been many times in my life where I've been moved to worship simply because of the beauty that I've seen around me. And I was, I was thinking back to, to one of those examples, a time clearly stuck out in my mind nearly 10 years ago. My wife and I were on summer vacation. We took a road trip through much of the U.S. and we were in Moab, Utah, right outside Arches National Park. And we had gone in, and if you've never been to that area of the world, it's known for its huge red rock formations that are just breathtaking because it's unlike anything that I have ever seen anywhere else in the world. And as you go in, we went into the visitor center, and the most prominent and famous arch in the park is called Delicate Arch. And it's actually what, if you've seen a Utah um, driver's plate, license plate, excuse me, it's the picture that's on their license plate. And it says in the brochure, do not expect to get a picture here by yourself. There's always so many people who make the mile hike up the mountain to see this rock that it's packed with people. Well, we saw that, and so we didn't go our first day there. And as we were back that evening, my wife said, hey, what if we got up really early tomorrow morning in the dark, and we hiked up the mountain, and we got there as the sun was rising, so we were there by ourselves. I said, that's a great idea. The alarms went off early. We got up. We drove into the park. We hiked up nearly a mile on bare rock, getting lost a couple times, eventually finding our way. So we came around the corner and just stood there in awe as there it was as the sun was starting to come up. If you've never been there before, this is Delicate Arch. That's me for scale, by the way. You can hardly see me in the picture. I'm about an inch tall there. You feel so small and insignificant next to just something so amazing. And then we sat on the rocks for nearly an hour, just my wife and I, just the two of us, as the sun rose up over the desert with the mountains behind us. And it was just a moment where I was just in worship. Because you would sit there and I would think, God is an amazing God. The world that he has created is an amazing world. And creation shouts the glory of God. And God's plan to, to, for salvation is, as Ed reminded us last week, is not just a personal plan of salvation, but it's cosmic as well. Why? Because God didn't just create mankind. God created all things. And all things reflect the glory of God. And that's why God's plan includes all things in his plan of salvation. Take time this week to notice God's beauty in creation. Living in Chicago, it actually sometimes takes some effort to do. We're not surrounded by it like those who are blessed to live in other places of the world. But there's still beauty in the snowflakes that fall as the sun rises every morning over Lake Michigan. Take time to notice the beauty of God. It's reflected and seen throughout all of creation. The second truth of creation is that all humanity is made in the image of God. All creation reflects the glory of God. Yes, but all humanity is uniquely made in the image of God. It says this in Genesis chapter 1. 
Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That God decides to create mankind. And he doesn't just make us like the rest of creation, but instead he decides to make something in his very likeness, in his very image. The significance of being made in the image of God is not just something we could spend a whole sermon talking on. It could easily be a sermon series. It's profound and has radical implications throughout all of our life. But for the sake today, a few things that it reminds us of. First, in relationship to the rest of creation, it reminds us of the uniqueness that mankind has. That mankind is unique amongst all of God's creation. That while God is over all creation, he has created all things, we, because of the image of God placed in us, have a special focus from God. And that's why as God's plan unfolds through history as revealed in his word, God's special focus is on us because we are made in his image. It's contradictory to a worldview that says we're here by accident and you share nothing of greater value. You're not unique than anything else that you see around you. God's word says we are unique. Your dog at home may be friendly. Your cat may be cute. Your rabbit may be fluffy. But they're not as unique as you are in God's eyes. Because you contain the image of God. Not only does it make us unique, it creates great value for every human life. The image of God means that every human life has great value. There's many things of this world that could have value. Many things of this world that have value. Did you hear about these shoes recently? These are a pair of 1972 Nike shoes. They're known as waffle shoes. They're literally known that because the creator of Nike made the soles of the shoes with the waffle iron in his kitchen. They were recently sold at an auction for $475,000 the most expensive shoes that are known to ever be sold in the world. These shoes are of great value to someone, to someone at least. Did you see about this recently? This car, it's a 1963 Ferrari GTO. It was a race-winning car several years ago that was sold at auction last year for $70 million. The most expensive car believed to have ever been purchased in the world. Or this, which was just last year as well. The penthouse in this building in Manhattan, downtown New York, overlooking Central Park, was sold last year. The buyer bought it for $239 million. You thought rent in Chicago was expensive. Just thank you. It's not New York. It's thought to be the most expensive home purchase in the history of the country. Clearly, this house and this value and the view had value to this person. Nearly over, excuse me, 100 years ago, this diamond 
was discovered. Over 3,100 carats the diamond was in its raw form, an estimated worth of $2 billion. $2 billion. See, we could go on and on and look at extravagant amounts of money that other people have paid for other items. But the truth is this. None of those things compares to the value of one human life. None of those things compares to the value of one human life. You could have the best car, the most amazing house with a view, the biggest diamond in the world, and it's not made in the image of God. But because mankind is made in the image of God, it gives us not only a unique status amongst creation, but of greater value and worth than anything else in this world. The image of God should transform how we think about life. Because humanity has this value, because we have been made in the image of God. The image of God should transform how we think about human life, particularly how we think about the beginning of life and the end of life. There's just as much dignity in an unborn child and a 100-year-old person as there is in an entirely healthy 25-year-old. Their value is not any different, even though the world may look at them and say, no, this one's worth more. This one values for this. No, because each one contains the image of God. All lives are of equal worth and value. That's why I'm so thankful that our church continues to partner with Karis, because they proclaim that this image of God portrays value not just to people who we see, but even to those who are unseen and are facing dire circumstances. And it's a reminder to us, as Pastor Bill said in this season, that this issue of human life is not a political issue. It's a people issue. And as Christians, we need to be doing a lot more for people than just saying, well, I voted for so-and-so. But who are we showing the love of Christ to in a real way? Because they're people who are affected by these things, people of value. This issue of the image of God changes how we think about racism in our world. It changes how we think about racism in the world. The history of our world and the history of this country would be far different if all people had always stood up for the full image of God in every single person. One person cannot be counted as three-fifths of someone else because they are of a different color. It portrays the image of God. And as a church, we cannot sit silently by as we see acts lived out in our world. Why? Because people, even though they may not look like us, are of the same value that we are. The things that make us like God are far more important than the physical differences that may make us look unlike each other. The image of God in our world changes how we think about issues such as nationalism. Now, it's good to be proud of where you're from. I am proud to be an American and glad that I was born here. But what what can happen as we think about the countries that we come from, if we're not careful, is we can start to think that a life has more value if it was born or resides in a certain country 
And because we live in this country, our life has more value of someone that lives somewhere else. There's something wrong when we think our life is more valuable simply because of where we were born. The life of every person has equal value. Doesn't matter if you were born in China or in Chicago, if you're born in America or in Algeria, if you're born in Illinois, Israel, Iraq, or Iran. All life has value. All life has value. The image of God sets mankind apart, makes us unique and valuable. And so as the story of salvation unfolds, God's focus amongst all his creation is particularly on us because we have been made in the image of God. Not only, though, were we made in the image of God, it says this, that third point, third truth of creation is that all mankind had, notice the past tense, had a perfect relationship with God. All mankind had a perfect relationship with God. Mankind was made for relationships. We were made for relationship. When God looked down as Adam existed there in the garden, surrounded by the beautiful creation that God had said, he says this in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Notice the contrast with not good. Compared to everything that we read in verse 1, where over and over and over it's repeated how good it is. It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so God creates two people. Not one by himself, but two. At the beginning of time, before there was any sin or difficulty in the world, man was made for relationship. Not just with each other, but man was created with a perfect relationship with God. Man had a perfect relationship with God. Now, it's hard to know a lot about what life was like for Adam and Eve in the garden before sin. We don't know how long that was, and we don't have a lot of scripture that tells us about what their life was like, especially with their relationship with God. But there's one verse I think that's so powerful, even though it's short. It says this in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and were not ashamed. And as we read that verse, it could be easy for us to think that it's talking about their relationship with each other which in some senses, perhaps it is. But primarily there, the author is talking about Adam's and Eve's relationship with God, that they were naked before God and were not ashamed. How do we know that? Well, if we look just a few verses forward into chapter 3, we see that once sin has entered the world, what is their response to their nakedness before God? They hide. They hide because they're ashamed. So what does it mean that they were naked before God with no shame? It means that they were fully known in every single way, emotionally, physically, spiritually, that God saw the very being of their hearts and lives, and because it was so pure, there was no sin there, they had perfect relationship with God, a perfect harmony and relationship with God. That's what man was created for for relationship with each other, but most importantly, for relationship with God. 
Before any wrongdoing entered the world, we had perfect relationship with God. See, often in, in our days and in our times, we, especially as I think 20th century, 21st century, excuse me, Americans, have this desire for independence in our lives. A desire for independence that we would become independent and not need to depend on anyone or anything. That our lives would be one of self-sufficiency. Several years ago, I came across this fascinating thing that I had never heard of before called an ecosphere. An ecosphere. You can purchase these on Amazon because you can buy everything on Amazon. An ecosphere is an entirely enclosed system that contains some shrimp, some algae, and some microorganisms in salt water. I just read that. I don't actually know that. Or I just read that online. And it's an entirely contained system that you don't need to feed it. You don't need to change the water, but it will stay and the life will sustain itself ongoing. Now, do these work? The answer is yes, because I bought one over four years ago for my wife for Christmas. And our little shrimp, he's still alive and kicking to this day over four years later. And it's this amazing thing that all you have to do is set it out so it gets some sunlight and it's entirely self-sufficient thing. It doesn't need any help from anyone else. Oftentimes that's how we treat what we want to get to as the goal of our lives. That we don't want to need anyone or anything else. That we could pursue life so that in every single way we don't have to rely on others We don't need others for other things. And most importantly, that we don't really need God in our lives. That we just become self-sufficient, independent beings. Mankind, at the very beginning, was created for relationship with God. We were created for relationship with God. We were not made to be self-sufficient. Adam and Eve in their perfect state before anything wrong had entered the world were not self-sufficient. They still needed and had a relationship with God. And their status before God of still needing a relationship with him reminds us of the truth that your life will not and cannot be complete without a relationship with God. Your life will not and it cannot be complete without a relationship with God because we were never meant to exist without a relationship with God. At the very beginning of creation, mankind was in relationship with God. And the story of salvation as we're going to look at over the next several weeks is what happened as our own sin got in the way of that relationship with God. And what God did through Jesus to provide a way to restore that relationship to us. And the reason that God cares so much, he loves us so much, he pursues us so passionately in this story that we're going to look at is he knows that we were never meant to provide for ourselves. We were never meant to be self-sufficient. The creation, the very beginning, reminds us that we need God. We desperately need God. Your life cannot, it will not be complete without Jesus. That we all need 
Jesus. Before the world had sin in it, before any wrongdoing had been there, God had a relationship with mankind. And it cries out to our need as we live thousands of years later on this side of all that's come in Scripture, that we still have that need fundamental in who we are in the image of God, that we were created not just to be independent, not to be self-sufficient, but each and every one of us were created to have a relationship with God. God, we do praise you this morning that you indeed are the creator of the world, that it shouts your praises and your glory and your greatness. And we thank you for the significance that you've placed on us as we are made in the very image of God. God, I pray that we would see the truth in your word, that long ago, before anything wrong in this world had come, that we were meant to know you. God, if there's anyone here this morning who's fighting back, not wanting to admit their need for you, would you break through their hearts today? God, and for the rest of us who sometimes admit our need, but often live life not acknowledging it, not living so day to day, would you remind us this week, would you remind us now of the desperate need that we have for a relationship with you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.